Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Good to see everyone tonight. Welcome, everybody that's logging in at home. How many people here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome back, everyone else. Welcome anybody that's on Zoom for the first time tonight. Against the Stream um, is a Buddhist meditation center, Buddhist meditation tradition. Grounded in the Theravada, which is the Southern school of Buddhism, um, as practiced in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and, um, but also very much an American Buddhist tradition that is also inspired by some of the Northern schools of Zen and Mahayana Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism. Um, but primarily I, I, as a practitioner and teacher, uh, draw my inspiration from the early Buddhist teachings, the original, the OG shit. And, um, but some of the later developments in Buddhism are very interesting and, and worth discussing and, and practicing some of it. So, um, you know, my, my sense of Against the Stream and, and, and Buddhist Sangha's communities is that there's a lot of different levels. One is that you can come here and you can learn how to meditate. If that's what you're looking for, you can come regularly, you'll get meditation instructions, you'll learn how to meditate. Um, you'll also learn um, Buddhism, you'll learn the philosophy, the teachings of the Buddha, what, you know, what the Buddha taught, how do we, uh, and then how do we apply that? How do we live it? How do we um, not just you know, get out of the intellectualizing and actually practice the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. And then a, a big component, I think, to actually having our own meditation center and community uh, is for you, is for the, uh, a home, a place where you can come regularly and get to know other people who are also interested in meditation and Buddhism and awakening, healing, recovery. There are a lot of our community are like myself, recovering addicts, and uh, not, but not everybody against the stream is quite intentionally not a recovery uh, community. It is uh, welcome. Everyone's welcome, whether you're, we don't kick the non-addicts out. Um, everyone's welcome to be here. Um, so I'm going to talk tonight about the possibility of this statement um, that all beings, including you, including me, all, all, all beings, all humans, all living beings, have the ability to free oneself from suffering in this lifetime. That, that uh, we there's the possibility, there's the ability, there's the potential that if we want it and are willing to work hard, that we can purify all of our karma and uh, wake up to what's causing our suffering and change our relationship so radically to what's causing our suffering that we find peace, so we find ease, that we end our suffering, and not in some 
some forms of Buddhism and some forms of spiritual teachings kind of have this like eventually in some future lifetime you can be free and some afterlife. But one of the really radical things about the Buddha uh, was that he was a humanist, uh, uh, a humanist that believed not in external powers or uh, but in the human potential to free ourselves through our own actions in this lifetime. And so it's pretty radical. Um, and I'm going to talk about that tonight and all of the ways that uh, some of the ways that he talked about it and some of my thoughts and experience with it. And we'll have some discussion. But before we meditate and then have that topic, I'd like you to uh, introduce yourself to some of the people in the room that you don't know yet. Just say hello to some folks. Introduce yourselves. At home, I'm going to throw you into some breakout rooms. He's been once or twice, but he doesn't go. He lives like Thousand Oaks or somewhere really far. You too, Richard. Welcome. 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 Welcome.
for the period of meditation, I'll offer some meditation instructions. First one is find a way to sit that feels comfortable, sustainable. Good boy. Arrange the spine so that it's upright without being rigid or stiff. Allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Just settling into the posture, feeling all of the sensations in your body connected with the sitting posture. Contact with the cushion, the chair, the floor. Making any adjustments that you need to make and then settling into relative stillness, taking a posture with the intention of maintaining that posture. Even if you get uncomfortable, it's Part of what we're learning is learning how to be uncomfortable without reacting by running from it. A willingness to just sit and receive the sensations, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. And remembering why you're meditating, what your intention is, your aspiration. Bringing an attitude of friendliness. The intention to accept ourselves just as we are, our minds, our bodies, our heart. The intention to be compassionate towards our own pain, be friendly towards our mind, even its unskillful habits of judgment or fear, craving. And bringing the attention to the sensations of the breath, mindfulness of breathing, with this intention of kind, receptive awareness, 
breathing in. Know that you're breathing in. Feel the sensations the breath creates. Breathing out, know that you're exhaling with full awareness, clear comprehension. The breath is coming or it's going. Let the attention be relaxed, receptive. A relaxed focus on the breath rather than rigid or overexerting. Just let the body breathe and receive the sensations the breath creates. We direct our attention to the breath. We direct our attention away from the planning mind, the judging mind, the past and future. Bringing our full attention to the here and now. Body sitting, breathing, keep it real simple.
Of course, the attention gets drawn back into thinking. Naturally, we spend a lot of our time thinking. We're not trying to stop our minds. But try to let the thoughts be in the background. Give them plenty of room. Give your mind all the permission to think. But allow your awareness to keep coming back to the breath. Ignoring the mind rather than engaging with it for now. Just let it be in the background. Keep coming back to the body sitting, breathing.
The simple mindfulness of the breath can teach us so much. The truth of impermanence revealed with each impermanent breath arising, passing. the impersonal nature of the body, how our bodies breathe all by themselves. We tend to take everything so personal, think we're in control, but the body just breathes. And awareness receives the sensations the breath creates. You can choose to keep it simple and just stay with your breath, or you can begin to expand the Buddha encouraged a more fully engaged with our whole being type of mindfulness, rather than the narrow focus on the breath, expanding the attention to your whole body, your heart, your mind, present time, non-judgmental kind awareness to what your mind is doing, to what kind of emotions are present, including the sounds and smells, images, receptive, and friendly awareness towards what's arising in this moment. What are you feeling in your body and your heart? What's your mind doing? Thinking about the future, the past, fantasizing, resenting, bring awareness to your mind. Observe it like you observe the breath, receive no what your mind is doing. We begin to see that just like the body breathes, the heart beats, the mind thinks all by itself, even when you're not trying to plan or remember, thoughts just arise. Always use the breath or sound 
or the contact with the chair or cushion as an anchor to the present here, sitting, breathing. When you get lost in the stories the mind is telling, just come back to the body. And if your body becomes uncomfortable, let that discomfort be the object of your awareness rather than shifting out of it. Breathe into it, soften around it. Try to bring friendliness to the discomfort rather than the habitual aversion, rather than needing to avoid this physical discomfort, just relax into it, accept it as much as you can. Mindfulness brings our awareness to the present time experience, starts to reveal that we perceive our experience as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, the second foundation of mindfulness. And it becomes clear that our suffering, our unhappiness, isn't so much about what's happening, about, but more about how we're relating to it. It's not the pain, it's our fear of pain, our aversion, our hatred. When we meet pain with kindness, with mercy and compassion, it's not such a problem anymore. Just discomfort.
for the last couple of minutes reflecting on this statement engaging your mind about the possibility of freedom in this lifetime make it personal about you say to yourself i could be totally free reflect on that free from suffering that you could learn to meet all of your pain with friendliness with mercy and compassion you could learn to meet the impermanent pleasures of life with acceptance non-attached appreciation that we're not stuck we're not broken we're not unable All we need is the willingness to be disciplined about our practice, our renunciation. Asking yourself, how free do you want to get? And how hard are you willing to work for that freedom? I know there's different levels of um, familiarity with the Buddha's teachings in the in the room. Some people, some of you, true believers, and studying, practicing for a long time, uh, have some verified faith, have seen the direct uh, results of long-term 
meditation practice and renunciation and uh, seeing the transformation directly in your own life. Some of you, a little bit new, not, not so sure. <laughs> Sounds like a bill of goods. <laughs> not, don't quite have the direct experience yet, still sort of uh, kicking the tires, making sure. Seeing, you know, and, and this is really the uh, spirit of, of Buddhism, the, the Buddhist teaching, which is uh, see for yourself. Don't, don't believe me. Don't, don't, uh, there's not a lot of faith asked for in uh, early Buddhism and traditional. It's much more like here's a practical uh, path for you to experience for yourself. You have to do all of the meditating yourself. Nobody can meditate for us. You have to do all of the renunciation for yourself. Nobody can do it for you. You have to, to do the work. And... But the core, uh, and it's, it's pretty fucking lofty, right? Like it's not saying, uh, you know, in, in, in America, there's been, you know, we've taken mindfulness out of Buddhism which sometimes and derogatorily is called Mick mindfulness, fast food meditation, you know, on your app for seven minutes. Um, and with this, uh, and kind of ha started happening like in the seventies and eighties with the kind of cool hippie uh, psychologists who are like, let's see how this meditation that we're doing will, will work to decrease stress, st mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, and it, it works like my, you know, it's, uh, I'm talking a little bit of shit, but I'm also a fan of the fact that, that Buddhist mindfulness has been secularized and brought into uh, science and brought into neuroscience and brought into uh, uh, psychology and uh, medicine, pain management, uh, all of these different areas of applying uh, the Buddhist teachings and pretending like they're secular psychological tools. I think it's great uh, on a lot of levels. And uh, for sure it works to, to decrease your stress and to increase your sense of contentment a little bit. Um, and it depends on what, you, what we want, depends on what you want, why you're meditating, what your intention is. Um, but the Buddha was, you know, there's this saying uh, which always confuses me a little bit, common thing, uh, quote of the Buddha, where he says, I only teach one thing. He says, and I only teach the truth of suffering, that, there, that we all normalizes it. Suff <laughs> suffering is normal, not your fault. You're not doing something wrong. You take birth, you suffer. He says, I teach that truth that we all have some suffering. It goes with birth aging, sickness, death, suffering is not all of life, but part of our experience. That I teach that, that that is the truth for all of us and the end of suffering is possible in this lifetime. First, we have to turn towards it, acknowledge it, stop denying, minimalizing, avoiding, pretending like we're as happy as we look on Instagram Stop, you know, fronting and being like, oh, no, I'm, I'm cool. I got my shit together. I'm, I'm not suffering. First, we have to see the truth of like all of the subtle 
you know, there's the big sufferings. A lot of people in our community, myself, like we come to meditation Buddhism out of desperation because of big suffering, the suffering of addiction, the suffering of mental illness, the suffering of big heartbreaks, losses. And so there's those big ones. But then there's just the little ordinary, average, everyday. One of the ways that suffering, uh, one monk that it translates it as stress. And so just thinking about like, what did you, what was stressful today? <laughs> what did you experience as stress is suffering, right? The absence of contentment, of peace, of being at ease is suffering. And so there's the big ones where it's like, this is, seems unbearable. And then there's just the like, being stressed at work, at, in traffic and conflict and finding a parking place for the fucking meditation center, whatever it is of like, I'm suffering about going to try to not suffer so much. <laughs> and this huge promise that says all beings have the ability, all of us, no matter how in, in in AA, they say, no matter how far down the scales in your life, you have the ability to, to recover. Uh, the Buddha says, no matter how confused you've become, no matter how much, no matter how bad your karma is based on your actions in this lifetime. Because I know for myself, when I came here, I was like, I don't know, I've hurt a lot of people, I've hurt myself, I've, uh, you know, I don't know if I can be free. And um, it sounded like a little far-fetched. Enlightenment, freedom, liberation sounded a little too mystical to me. It still does in some, some ways, uh, although my definition, my experience has sort of changed my, what my, my early ideas were. Like if your idea of Freedom is that you're going to experience bliss all of the time. You'll be disappointed. If your idea is that you will be comfortable all of the time, that you will um, not have pain anymore, that's not possible. That's not what the Buddha is teaching. He's saying, and, and this is very important to get our mind around, that there's a huge difference between pain and suffering. As I was saying in the instructions tonight, the encouragement to like, it's okay to be uncomfortable. Learn to be physically uncomfortable without turning that physical discomfort into suffering. Learn to be emotionally uncomfortable, difficult, anger, fear, loss, loneliness, uh, without turning that difficult emotion into suffering. It's just a just painful emotion painful sensation. Without meditation in the beginning, it's not, it's not possible. But in the long run, the more we meditate, we get, we can come to the place where we increase our tolerance for pain to the point where we learn to be merciful and compassionate and forgiving. And we're not suffering about all of the difficulties and 
stressors and uh, pains of existence. That's sort of the bad news of this whole big promise. Because you hear free, and you, you know, doesn't your mind think like comfortable, <laughs> happy? I want shit to feel good all the time. Not the Buddha's teaching, right? He says suffering, the end of suffering is not the end of pain. It's not the end of loss. It's not the end of conflict. It's not the end of being criticized or being judged or any of that stuff. It's just the end of taking all that shit personally and suffering about it. So no matter what your karma is, if you're committed, the teaching is you can free yourself. You can purify all of your karma. You can, uh, you can do it in this lifetime. One of the most, thinking of a couple of um, examples, one of the most extreme examples uh, from the early suttas, the Buddha's teachings, is uh, of a serial killer that gets enlightened. And so um, I'll tell you the story, but just for a moment, you think like, well, I'm kind of a, you know, you think you sort of hate yourself, low self-esteem, whatever. You think I can't do it. I'm, you know, and you think like, well, there's this guy who's like so deranged that he's murdering people. So confused that he's murdering, not just like, accidentally killing somebody in a fist fight like murdering serial killer and not like the cool like dexter with a code of like only killing the bad guys but just out murdering mayhem one of the ways i heard that his name is anguli mala he's a he's a mass murderer who um, takes trophies like all serial killers. You gotta take a trophy. And his trophy is that he'll murder you and then he'll cut your finger off. Uh, Anguli means finger and mala means, you know, malas like the necklaces that people chant with and stuff. So he, his, he's making a necklace of mala of fingers. And so he needs like 108 of them or some, some exaggerate and say 1,008. You know, you got to kill a whole bunch of people, chop their finger off so you can get that killer finger necklace. <laughs> and Guli Mala. I don't know how, how important it is, but I find it interesting that uh, one of the ways I've heard his story told was that before he became a serial killer, he was a sincere meditator. He, as a, as a kid, he grew up, um, as a you know a seeker and was it was sincere about it and uh and had this guru and you know and this had this this guru and um and was having all these spiritual experiences and was and then at one point his gurus the way that this is told and maybe a bit misogynistic i don't know but the way that it's told is that um the guru's wife really liked him and gave the gave him a lot of attention and uh, the guru got jealous so it's actually not down on the women's the, the the man got jealous and went into this jealous rage and then said and i forget what his name was before but we'll just call him anguli and um said okay 
you need to, I, I have a, a spiritual practice for you. I have a discipline that, I, that you, you need to leave the ashram. You need to go out and you need to um, practice this austerity uh, of worshiping Kali. You know, Kali is like the, the, the Hindu goddess of, of this fierce, you know, kind of pictured like chopping people's heads off and blood run, you know, like some of this Hindu uh, uh, iconography, which is so cool and gory. And this is like, you know, you have to go sacrifice humans for Kali. And I need you to, you know, and in order to prove that you've done this uh, murder, cut out their finger off and don't come back until you have a 108 fingers. And so he's a little confused at first. Of course, he's like, shit, like, what about ahimsa, which means nonviolence? Like, we've been practicing this path. We're meditating. We're trying to, and all of a sudden, but, but you know, Kali is part of our, one of our goddesses, and there's at least, and so anyways, he's like, all right, well, I guess I just have to go murder. My guru told me to murder. I guess I got to go murder. And I got, kind of got a, a little bit of a um, slow start and like killed somebody and felt bad about it. And, but it was sort of exhilarating. I was like, oh, it's a kind of did it again. He was like, oh, that's kind of rad. It's like chase people down and murder them and cut their finger off. And then he was just <laughs> it was like bloodlust, you know, like at some point he got into this and and. You know, in, in these Buddhist and Hindu, there's this whole understanding that like, I'm not my body, you know, and that that's, this is not our, this is not our identity. There's reincarnation and, and this whole sort of like, well, you just kill them and they come back and it's, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's their karma. Don't, don't worry about it too much. And part of the kind of magical part of the story is that the more that he murdered, the more powerful he became. Um, and he got like these like superpowers, what are called CDs, these like spiritual powers where uh, it came that the more he had murdered, he could like run faster and faster and he could go so fast that even people on horseback couldn't uh, elude him. And so he would run up and tear you off the horse and cut your finger off will kill you and then cut your finger off. And then at one point um, he had killed, he was like close to completing his mala, but everybody knew that, you know, so people were running from him. There was like kind of people were uh, hiding. The villages were empty when he go to murder. And he's like, well, I'm going to go kill my mom. I need one more finger and I know where my mom is and I'll, I'm gonna go get that bitch, dear old mom. And the Buddha was in the area and this is like contemporary. So, uh, the, the Buddha was alive and, and was in that area and, and heard about it and um, was you know walking through the jungle, the forest and some of the kind of king's guards, you know, some, some guards came up and said like, hey, Buddha, don't go into that forest because Angulimal is around here and he's murdering people. And, you know, we want you to be safe. So don't, don't go in that. And the Buddha uh, was 
wanted to go confront him and was like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to this confused uh, person and see if I can talk some sense into him and give him some teachings about the importance of nonviolence and mindfulness and compassion. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> and um, so he walks into the, uh, you know, down this path. And it's said that Angulimala sees him like from a nearby hill and sees the Buddha walking. And you can just sort of picture in your own mind the, the Buddha like doing slow walking meditation, just kind of like cruising with his killer robes and his bald head and his begging bowl. And, um, and Gulliamala sees him and starts running and he's got that superpower of running and he kind of closes the, the gap. And then he gets to this point where he's like, I don't know, 10 feet away or something. And the Buddha's walking slowly. This is one of those magical stories. The Buddha's walking slowly and Angulimala is running, but he can't close the distance. There's something where he just can't quite reach the Buddha. And finally he gets frustrated and he says, you monk, stop. And the Buddha slowly stops and turns around and the kind of distance closes and they're standing face to face. And the Buddha says, uh, Ingulimala, I stopped a long, long time ago. Uh, and when are you going to stop? And do you want to stop? And I can help you stop. And, uh, you know, and it's that moment of clarity, that conversion as the story goes. Uh, and the Buddha says, I want to, and Ingulimala says, I want to stop. I'm, I lost my way. I've become so confused. My, you know, I was misled by this teacher and I, I've really lost my way into this world of violence and murder. And, and the Buddha says, well, if you're sincere, I can teach you. you know, there's this truth of suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering is possible in this lifetime. And, and, and you know, Angulimala is like, even for me, like after I've killed, I could still get free. And the Buddha says, yes, you can purify your karma won't be easy, but it's possible for you to do it. Um, and Ingulimala says, well, please take me as a student, take me as a disciple. And, um, and the other, the rest of the community is quite, uh, when they find out about this and, uh, you know, the Buddha comes back to camp, back to the, uh, you know, dwelling where the rest of the monks are with Ingulimala, they're like, you brought the murderer home? with you and they shave his head and they put him in robes and get rid of his finger necklace and <laughs> and he becomes a monk but uh, the buddha has to defend him a lot because um you know the people feel unsafe as you might um, you know imagine if you know you knew somebody in the room was you know if ted bundy wanted to come meditate with us um but it's just why leave it. It's fine. Just water. Um, you know, you could imagine if like there's Richard Ramirez was like, I'm going to become a Buddhist. I'm going to against the stream. Um, we'd all think and feel like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, and the Kings, uh, at one point came and, and Gulimala was already like in robes and, you know, all monked out. Um, and they said, you know, what happened? Like you're walking over there and, uh, you know, we're going, we're going to try to find him. We're going to try to kill him. And, 
and the Buddha said, like, well, if he uh, if he had become a monk, if he joined our sangha, would you give him forbearance? Would you allow him to live with us? And um, the king, the king or the guards or whoever it was, was like, well, I guess because you're, you know, an a, a enlightened being, you're an awakened one, but that's never going to happen. Um, that's just an impossibility. People don't change. You know, and this is that big archetypal, you know, story. It's probably not a true story, but it's a story. Um, and, the, you know, and then Buddha says, well, this, this here, this monk, this bhikkhu here is formerly Angulimala. He's the murderer you're looking for, and he's become a monk, and he is vowed to nonviolence and to these precepts and to developing the wisdom and compassion that we can develop in this lifetime into purifying his karma. Throughout Angulimala's life as a monk, um, it's said that he was uh, repeatedly attacked and beaten by um, villagers. They would go on their begging rounds and people would be like, that's the guy that killed my cousin. And he'd be attacked and beaten and he would come back kind of bloody and but no, nobody murdered him, but they beat him with sticks and threw rocks at him and and he would come back to the Buddha and say, like, I don't, uh, I can't defend, you know, I've taken this vow of nonviolence and I probably deserve this, but what do I, what do I do? Should I just go live in a cave and avoid people or, and the Buddha said, no, you live with us. You do what we do. You go into town and, um, you know, and if people beat you, you just bear it. You just take it. This is you purifying your karma. You created this, and this is your way of getting free. By, and that not only would people beat him, but that also he had uh, what we would call terrible luck. So not only would people attack him, but like um, said, like if he was walking past a second-story window, flower pots would just like fall on his head. <laughs> And that sometimes when people weren't even trying to hit him, like somebody was throwing rocks at, to, at a dog, it would miss the dog and hit him in the face. <laughs> the, 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 the kind of karma was just drawn to him. And many times he went to the Buddha and said, I just don't know if my body can make it. I'm trying to be compassionate and I'm trying to be tolerant. I'm trying to bear all of this bad karma, negative uh painful experiences that are happening to me but and the buddha every time just said you know you have to just you got to take it you got to just see it as uh as an opportunity to purify some of the karma that you created in this lifetime and this is without even going into past lifetimes and at the very end of angulimala's life he had practiced, he had purified his karma, he had lived for, you know, decades practicing nonviolence, uh, meditating, doing the renunciation, celibate, you know, doing, you know, doing this incredibly disciplined life of a monastic and uh, became an arahant, right at the, which means a fully enlightened being at the end of his life. So, 
obviously I share this example and it's used as a teaching example that says even that guy could get completely free and so can you so can i so can anybody no matter what you've done no matter uh how traumatized you are no matter how addicted you've been no matter how unskillful you've been in your life you can get free if you're willing to meditate seriously meditate if you're willing to practice renunciation take a, a vow of non-violence and a non-violence that's not just physical violence but with our speech with our actions with the way that we respond to people with a kind of way that we uh, treat people with different views on social media with you know with all, all you know a kind of pervasive uh, kindness a pervasive non-violence friendliness uh, even towards the most confused people on the planet So thinking about him now i'm also thinking about and maybe you relate maybe some of you kind of are in gulimala types pretty extreme example and then i'm thinking about this other uh core disciple who doesn't become a monk who remains a householder who's a very successful businessman comes to the buddha and he's made you know what it would be millions or billions in our in our time and um but he he meets the Buddha and he says, I'm so successful and I have all of these businesses and, you know, I've got this empire. And he said, but I'm not that happy. He says, and I see you, um, a, a renunciate, a monk, and you're radiant with joy. You're, you're, you're so free and you don't have any of the, uh, you know, stresses that I have and, and should I become a monk? Um, because I, I made all of the money that I thought was going to make me happy and it didn't work. I had all of the success that I thought was going to be the solution and I got there and it didn't work. And the Buddha says to him something like, he says, you could become a monk if you want to. Um, of course, the doors are open. You want to become a monk? He says, but you don't have to become a monk. To get enlightened you can get you can experience freedom in this lifetime he says you have all of this uh, wealth and all of this uh, he says it's not money is not the cause of suffering it's only if you're attached to it it's only the clinging the craving it's your relationship he says money power responsibility none of that causes suffering only if you're so identified with it as who you are, only if you're so attached to it. And some, something like, um, you know, if you're attached to your wealth and your success, then yes, better to throw it all away than to let it poison your heart. It's not worth suffering about. He says, but it's also possible if you take this path, if you learn mindfulness, you'll learn the truth of impermanence, you'll learn the truth of non-attachment, you'll learn that this whole mind has a mind of its own. 
you'll be able to function with your power, with your success, with your billions or whatever it is, um, without suffering at all. You can become fully liberated without becoming a nun or a monk. He said, and then also you can use your resources to be a blessing. You can be generous. You can help people. You have the ability to earn all of that. Don't fucking keep it, share it. There's so many people that don't have the ability to amass that kind of wealth. Share your wealth with the people that just don't even have that uh, ability. Um, and so I believe his name was Anatta Pindaka. Uh, I could be wrong. That might not be the right name, but I, I think that's his name. Um, and so he became this, you know, very generous person that like, uh, you know, supported the Sangha and, um, you know, supported, uh, you know, the Buddha's teachings and, you know, fed the poor and, you know, just did what he could with his money and lived his life and became, uh, you know, got woke up got free uh, and didn't become a monk and lived his life as a business person and did all of his businesses, but took the Dharma of non-attachment, took the Dharma of compassion, took the Dharma of uh, generosity into his business, into his relationship to the world, broke the delusion that uh, of I, me, mine, and I got to get it and I got to keep it. <laughs> rather than like, oh, it's all a kind of a flow. Like it comes and I give it and I share it and I, you know, spread the wealth rather than, and, and, and he died broke, you know, and there's that whole uh, idea that, you know, even in ancient India and continuing to now, which is this sort of like, make all of your money and then leave it to your ancestors. This, you know, rather than like, no, like spend it all in your lifetime, you know, make sure you have enough for retirement, old age, whatever, hopefully, but like, you know, spend it all in your lifetime, use it to be a blessing to as many people as possible, rather than just uh, fucking up your ancestors by letting them be wealthy without working for it. And that wasn't Jeff Bezos. It was not. It was not. I was just thinking, I heard, a, a, I don't know if this is true, I read this somewhere, that uh, Sting, uh, there was this article and Sting was saying, um, they were, he's being interviewed about how uh, he's worth, I don't know, what is 600 million or some, some hundreds of millions or something. <laughs> and um, he was saying how he's not leaving a dime to his children. He's got a bunch of kids. And he said, you know, and I've told my kids the whole time, I'm not gonna leave them anything. And I'm, I've got all these foundations. He said, because I just wouldn't do that to my kids. You know, I just, I, I've seen it, what happens when people, you know, just inherit money that it rarely works out very well for them. And so all of my kids have successful careers and um, I'm not gonna do that to them. That was an interesting total aside. So whether you're a serial killer or even Jeff Bezos, and you know, really this teaching is saying everybody, it's saying, um, you know, it's saying Donald Trump, it's saying, uh, you know, um, Biden, you know, if you wanna go both sides, it's saying, uh, you, know, you know, Hitler, it's saying like everybody, has the ability to get free. 
everybody. Everybody has, you know, the Tibetans talk about this as Buddha nature. Now, the sad reality is very few people even try. And of the people who try, like sincerely say, I am going to try to get free on with a technique, with a path that actually has the potential. I think a lot of people, a lot of the materialists think like, I'm going to try to get as rich as possible and that's going to make me happy. And then they like this story of like, oh, but it didn't work. So very few people wake up to say like, oh, non-attached, generosity, compassionate, service, meditative wisdom. I'm going to dedicate my life to that and see how free I can get. Very few people try. And of the people, you know, that do try, very few people follow through. I asked you tonight to end the meditation by reflecting on um, how free you want to get and how hard you're willing to work for it, how committed you are. Um, So, you know, simply like acknowledging that often it doesn't match up of like, oh yeah, I really want to get free. I really want to end my suffering. I really want to have that kind of liberation that I can meet my pain with compassion. I want to do that. And then it kind of like rubber meets the road where the ass meets the cushion of like, well, are you willing to meditate for an hour every day for the next 10 years to see how it goes? Could you do that? Can you just commit to getting your ass on the cushion and being mindful and doing some forgiveness and doing some loving kindness and doing some compassion? Do you want it enough to meditate every day, to go on silent meditation retreats? Do you want it enough to uh, not keep all of your money, but be generous with it, share it with others? um, Do you want it enough to practice the five precepts, to practice nonviolence, radical nonviolence, not just not being a serial killer, but really um, being kind? being tolerant, being forgiving, even of the, your enemies, even of the most confused uh, people, to being honest, rigorously honest, all of the time, even when it's incon- inconvenient, uncomfortable, to being uh, wise and careful with our sexuality, uh, uh, abstaining from inappropriate relationships, being honest in relationships, not cheating, not manipulating. Do you want it enough to not use drugs and alcohol? Now, a lot of our community is uh, in recovery. So like we are free from drugs and alcohol by necessity. (laughs) But this is a bigger dilemma for people interested in Buddhism who uh, aren't addicts and aren't in recovery. Now, the Buddha's teaching on the five precepts is as if you want this freedom, There's no place for recreational drug and alcohol use. Drugs and alcohol put you to sleep. If you wanna be awake, stay sober so that you can be mindful all of the time. One of the reasons we like the effects of drugs and alcohol is because they sort of dull the mindfulness, (laughs) right? It takes the edge off of reality, that's pleasant. But freedom, 
from this perspective comes from totally facing reality just as it is all of the time. How free do you want to be? I'll open to uh, your questions, comments, some discussion. I'll tell you how free I want to be. I want to be as free as possible in this lifetime, as free as I can get while still indulging in sense pleasures. While still indulging in sense pleasures. Because there is a perspective of like the monastics, which is like, well, if you really want to do it, be celibate, abstain from sense pleasures, no music, no art, no dinner. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm more like, I want to be like Anata Pindaka, you know, the, the business person, the householder, married, children, you know, like I, I want to be in the world, you know. Uh, on the motorcycle, you know, in the ocean, whatever it is, with the sense pleasures, with the delicious food, not the begging bowl full of gruel <laughs> attached to my sense pleasures, but with the intention to meet it all with non-attached appreciation, without suffering about it. So what are your thoughts, questions, comments at home or in the room? How free do you want to get? And does it make sense? And uh, again, it's, I'm not asking you if you believe this. I'm saying like this is the teaching. The potential is that we can all do it. If you want to do it, you can do it, but you got to do the practice. So many of us read the books and it sounds so good. And it like, I want it, but I'm not actually meditating. And we're kind of showing up in our relationships the same way. I'm going, how come I'm not changing? Well, I, I haven't done the inner work yet. Or I've only been doing it for a year. And it takes, it's a gradual process. You know, I love to quote the Dalai Lama who says, commit to your practice, check in on your progress every decade or so. <laughs> and that in if you meditate, if you give yourself an hour of practice and renunciation a day for the next in 10 years, you'll look back and you'll be like, I am so much more at ease in my own skin now, 10 years later. I'm so much easier to be honest and to be kind and to be forgiving, to be non-attached. 10, you know, and then in 20 years and then in 30 years, you'll see, like, oh yeah, this shit has not just decreased my stress, it has increased my freedom by 70%, by 80%, by 90%. But again, don't believe me, do it. And you know, some of you are, already know because you've been doing it and you see the freedom that's coming. So let's talk about it. Jonathan, please jump in. Thank you, Noah. Uh, my name is Jonathan. My question is when you suggest hour of meditation a day what are your thoughts on splitting that 30 minutes when i wake up and 30 minutes before bed or do you suggest based on your experience an hour at one single time yeah um i was sort of throwing out an hour a little bit um just uh i was just throwing it out there um my sense is that uh, if you're new and you sit for like 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day, that's fucking great. 
and then get to the place. I kind of feel like 20 minutes is like a minimum for your daily meditation practice, at least 20 minutes. But again, less is fine. If you know, if you're brand new and you have ADHD and you think you can't sit still and you do it for five or 10 minutes, that's okay. Sit for five or 10 minutes, but try to get to 20. And then you'll see, oh, I can sit for 20. And then you'll see, oh, I can actually sit for 30. Like tonight, we sat for 30 minutes. Every time you come here, you sit for 30 minutes. You can do it. There is something that's easier with the peer pressure of 50 people <laughs> holding you down. But you see, it doesn't stop some people from being like fidgety and walking out. But mostly you can do it. You, 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 you hung in there. Um, so 30 minutes is great. My own sense is that 45 minute a sitting, like right now I'm doing a course, a, a three month course. And I've asked everyone in that course to sit for 45 minutes at a time, you know, in not breaking it up, but do a 45 minute sit uh, every day. That's solid. My sense is that if you do a 45 minute sit every day, that's super solid. Some people find that actually I wanna push it to an hour um, to sit for an hour. Um, is there a particular time of day that you do your meditation or does it depend on your schedule? Depends on, it depends on my schedule. And it depends on, you know, I've had times where I've been a morning, like get up. Now mornings are like, get the kids to school. Yeah. You know, before I had kids, I had more of a morning routine. Now it's kind of more drop the kids off maybe in the evening, you know, uh, depending on my work schedule. And, and so, um, <laughs> I don't think that there has to be a certain time. There is this thought that like dawn is the best time to meditate. Like if you go to a temple, if you go to a monastery, there'll be this like 4 a.m. ceremony. Like, you know, the world is quiet. The sun is rising. The crickets are chirping. Perfect time to meditate. I think it's bullshit, personally. <laughs> it's way too, it's, I think it's bullshit. It's, I think it's bullshit. I think a few, few reasons I think it's bullshit and I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong, but I think it's bullshit because also that attachment to a quiet world. I think it's actually better to sit in the, train your mind to meditate in the midst of the reality that you live in. If you live in a world where it's always dawn, cool. I don't. I live in the city. I live in chaos. I think it's great to meditate with traffic and not when it's quiet and, you know, because that's going to be the reality for the rest of my day. I want to train myself to be mindful of what I inhabit rather than 4 a.m. I don't inhabit 4 a.m. I also think that that tradition of the kind of dawn meditation comes from the Buddha after sitting for several days reached enlightenment at dawn. And so people are like, okay, well, maybe we can cheat it. I'm not going to sit for days, but if we get up at dawn, maybe we can get enlightened like the Buddha did. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm not a fan of the early mornings, obviously. Thank you. <laughs> Please, Scott. myself getting constantly pulled into like like just a hustle and hustle with social media and texting and the fast pacedness and I'm wondering 
<laughs> even though it's an inside job mostly, what, what do you think like the importance is of like living in a slower town or even like you surround yourself with or your job of like so like changing your external to kind of set yourself up for perhaps more energies? Like what's the big significance of that? Um let me repeat it for the people. Could you hear the question was about this kind of like, uh, is there some wisdom to it when we get serious about the practice to maybe change some of the externals of our of our, you know, rather than being in the fast paced, busy city, like would we be better off meditating if we lived in a small town or in the country or um, and then also about the people that we hang with and um so several different levels to that for sure as you know i'm always talking about the company that we keep is quite important sangha is very important and you want to as much as possible have positive influences around you people who are like did you meditate i meditated like you want to go to meditation you want to you know making friends with people who are doing what you're trying to do this is part of the function of of against the stream part of the function of of the sangha um it's probably not so great if you're the only meditator you know right it's probably not so great if you're the in your circle you're the only one practicing because then you're the weirdo and you're the kind of outsider rather than like it's being mirrored um i mean i know i sit in a weird place since i'm the teacher and all of that but everybody i know that's close to me meditates on one level or another you know, not everybody has a disciplined daily practice, but uh, I'm not that interested in people that don't have a practice. I don't know, you know, like I have some old punk rock friends that don't, and but the, the, all of the close people in my life have a practice on one level or another. Uh, so important, to, to, you know, so important. And um, so I don't really know the answer. You could try it. You know, like try moving to Fresno. <laughs> no offense, Julie. Um, uh, or, or somewhere, I don't know. I, my experience, and you, you know, my experience is I started meditating in Santa Cruz in the late 80s. Um, then I lived in San Francisco for almost 10 years. Then I was in New York City. Then I've been in Los, Los Angeles for the last 16 years now. Uh, I like cities. I like meditating in cities. I like living in cities. I like visiting the country. Like I, I love, you know, the redwoods are amazing. The desert, like I, I like visiting those places. Um, but all of my 30 years of practice has been urban. And, you know, we go on these retreats and I, you know, go to Thailand or India and like traveling and visiting those places and doing the retreats and, you know, wherever um, is very cool. But I have very intentionally had my meditation centers in San Francisco, in the Mission District, and in New York City. We were on Bleecker and um, and uh, uh, Houston. Um, you know, like we we're right in the mix in in New York City and in, in downtown. Uh, here in in Venice, we were in Santa Monica. We we're in Hollywood. Like, I like practicing in the city. As far as the social media stuff meditate before you check your phone you know like and then meditate with your phone you know like really bring your mindfulness 
uh, you know, somebody was the other day was showing me about how they had like mindfulness bells on their phone, like it would ring. Uh, I think the Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a, an app, the Plum Village, where it gives you a mindfulness bell every hour that reminds you to come back to the present. But also bring mindfulness to uh, as you're looking at your phone, as you're looking at social media. I really like to practice. I like social media. I'm on there. Um, and practicing with pleasant, unpleasant, neutral <laughs> as I'm scrolling through Instagram. And like, you know, because it just immediately, if you're being mindful, you see, oh, this is pleasant. Oh, this is unpleasant, 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 <laughs> unpleasant, neutral, neutral, pleasant. And just kind of looking at, at it that way and being mindful of what you're seeing and how it's landing in your mind and your heart and your body. Ultimately, it all becomes practice. It becomes integrated. I, I don't think we have to go anywhere to develop the wisdom that we're seeking, but we do have to find the people and the community and the um, willingness to get our ass on the cushion every day and to make the time for retreat and to make it more central in our life. And you can always, yeah, these days we can Zoom and there's so many resources online. Judy, last last comment, we'll end here. I lived in the middle of the woods for 25 years, as you know, on a river. And um, if you don't fix your internal life, you're just as miserable in the middle of the woods as you are in the city. Also, it's not quiet. I know city people think it's quiet in the woods. It's never quiet ever and cranes fighting in the morning sound exactly like car alarms only you can't yell at them to shut up <laughs> you can't turn them off <laughs> it, it has it has its perks but my experience is you fix yourself and then it doesn't matter where you are thank you i'm going to end there since we're out of time happy to talk to people after class um I've got some new Judy who just shared, made this drawing. Um, and it's a it's a new draw, you know, um, t-shirt that I made, death metal against the stream Venice. So we have that. And then my friend um Scott Sylvia, old friend, tattoo artist, made these uh this design, Dharma Punk's shirt, FTW PMA. Um and so we have them here if you want. There's also a sweatshirt, um, some new designs on the merch. We have them here uh, at home. You're going to have to wait for like another week or two because I got to get the photos taken for them to get posted for then my mom to be able to send them to you. Yeah, my mom does the mailing. Some of you know my mom and she's on the class tonight, so you could harass her. She already has the merch. It's in Santa Cruz. You could go pick it up, Jeff. Um, so we'll leave it there. Class is done by donation. Just like Anatta Pindika gave all of his wealth to the Buddha, you should give most of yours to against the stream, um, or at least like a ten or fifteen dollar donation if you can. Uh, if you can't give a donation, you're welcome to be here regardless of ability to donate. Thank you all for being here. And um, see you next week. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all living beings.
Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.